Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to continue to study uh, this field of apologetics as we can learn how to defend the faith. And um, Lord, we want to see people impacted with the gospel of Christ. And it's often through apologetic conversations that we're able to do that. And so I pray that you would be working in us, working in our hearts, in our lives. Give us opportunities. Help us, Lord, to create opportunities for sharing Jesus Christ with others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, every week I try to just remind us of a couple of things that we've previously talked about. Um, apologetic definitions, the defense of, uh, the discipline of offering a defense of, and a case for, or evidence for, the veracity and reliability of the Christian faith. In short, knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and being able to explain why in a winsome way. This is apologetics, seeking to offer this rational defense. And of course, thinking from an, more of an offensive standpoint, uh, Bonson once, or I think it was Bonson, maybe it was Van Til, uh, the vindication of the Christian worldview over and against the non-Christian worldview. Actually, that was Van Til who said this. Um, the demonstration, as different worldviews come into conflict, that the Christian worldview is the superior one, we talked about before about how it's the purpose of it is to answer non-Christians' questions and remove distractions from belief, and it points people to Jesus Christ when we couple it with evangelism, and that is what we want to get to. We want to get to evangelism. Last week, we started talking about the concept of worldviews. A worldview is just simply how one views the world, uh, how we understand the world and everything in it, how it all fits together. Greg Bonson says, a network of presuppositions about the nature of God and man, the world, how we know, how we're supposed to live our lives, etc. All these things come together and form our worldview, our theory of everything, how we think about the way everything works, what's our purpose, etc. That's our worldview. Uh, we talked about different questions that we can ask that will help expose and uncover someone's worldview. Who are we as human beings? Where did the universe come from? How should we be living our lives? What's the purpose of life? What happens after we die? Are we accountable to anyone? All these kinds of questions are questions that will expose someone's worldview and, and begin to peel back some of the layers and say, okay, how does this person think about the world? How does this person think through about the things going on in the world? We use this graphic to help us illustrate this concept of how uh, the different aspects of our worldview, there's a uh, our view of reality, that's the big word we use for that is metaphysics. The question of how do you know what you know, the big word there is epistemology. There's the question of who is the ultimate authority. And all these things inform our ethics about how, just our theory of the ought, what ought to be, what is right, what is wrong, what should be. What, is there something wrong with the world? Well, what is that thing and, and what should it be look like instead? All these different things come together and form our comprehensive worldview. And we talked about this concept of coherence, about how a consistent worldview, these different elements will exist in harmony with one another. They, they cohere together. And we talked a little bit about how when we're uncovering and trying to expose someone else's worldview and trying to point them to Christ, we're challenging the consistency of their own worldview from within itself. So maybe their theory of reality doesn't mesh with uh, an ethical understanding of how they're saying we ought to be living, or perhaps they're denying 
any kind of ultimate authority, and yet they still are appealing to some level of authority to somewhere along the line. Different things that we can be probing into to try to challenge someone's worldview. I'm going to show you a new chart now, and this is a bit of a busy chart, so I'm going to apologize for it might seem overwhelming at the start, but bear with me for a minute, and I want to direct your attention to particular places, and then we'll expand and view the whole chart as we go along. I told you. I told you it was a little busy. All right, let me get out my little uh, laser pointer here. We've got multiple worldviews going on in the world, right? There's a Christian worldview, and then there's every other worldview. Now, this chart was actually developed by uh, Jeremy Howard, my uh, podcast um, co-host, pastor in Utah, as he's engaging with Mormons and stuff. He's always having to think through apologetics on that level. Well, he developed this chart to help think through what, what, almost, what apologetics looks like. And so if we start with, just let's think about the Christian worldview for a moment. We have the Christian worldview, and it's founded on the basis that God is. God exists, right? The Bible assumes this reality. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't provide a rational defense. It doesn't provide a rational, like, okay, this is how we know God exists. It just assumes it. God exists. So we start with that fundamental, most basic reality. That's our fundamental presupposition. But not only does he exist, but he has revealed himself. It's not just this, this disconnected, amorphous being who's just so, so aloof and, and disconnected from the world that we can't ever know him or, or come to understand him in any way. He has revealed himself, and so we see in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. God is revealing himself in his creation. In Romans chapter 1, we see the, the statements about uh, how God has made everything and how there is this innate knowledge within mankind that God has revealed himself. He says, well, God, it's, it's, it's in nature. The invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in the things that he has made, right? It's, it's in nature, but it's also within man. He's without excuse. He knows within himself that God exists, and he has revealed himself. Now, man suppresses that down, tries to suppress the truth and exchange it with a lie, but the Christian worldview is founded upon this reality that God is. God has revealed himself in Scripture, in nature, and in man. And so we are without excuse. Consequently, out from these presuppositions, we have certain knowledge claims about the world. We make statements about the world. We say that man is made in the image of God. That's a knowledge claim. We say that, that the earth was created by God. That's a knowledge claim. We say that there is a problem in the world. There's sin in the world, and it has is, it is corrupted us to our very being. Well, that's a knowledge claim. That's a truth claim. Well, these knowledge claims are all founded upon the presupposition of God as the judge and the authority. It goes back to our fundamental presupposition that God is, and God has revealed himself. And so we find this flow going on within our worldview. Good morning. Now, when we contrast this with a non-Christian worldview, the non-believer does not start with God. He starts at a different place, and now this, these different places might look differently from person to person, but ultimately... 
their sinful desires and preferences without accountability. They're appealing to something, and usually it's, it's, they're all ultimately basing it upon their own self as the judge and authority. They are their own arbiter of truth in the midst of things. So they get to determine what they think is right. You know, there's a, there's a subjectivism in the midst of all of that. But there's different layers of reasoning that, that individuals try to work through to establish and get to knowledge claims on their end. So, so both the uh, Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview is ultimately going to make knowledge claims. We make knowledge truth and truth claims. The unbeliever makes knowledge and truth claims. Well, how do they get there? Well, they might get there through inductive reasoning or pragmatism, whatever works. I'm just, just kind of whatever works in life as a pragmatic viewpoint. They might get there through just their sense perception, collective thinking. Oh, whatever the consensus says, that's what I'm going to go along with because we've decided collectively that this is good and right. Maybe they get through through personal experience. Well, this is what I've experienced, and therefore I think this is what is true. Well, they're all making knowledge claims, but ultimately all these knowledge claims are based off of their own ideas. They're based off of their own conceptions or they're based off of the ideas and the conceptions of some other human being, but then they themselves are rationally thinking, oh, this is what I think is right too. So it all comes back to that. So there's a clash of worldviews going on. The, the, the unbeliever has their knowledge claims. The believer has their knowledge claims. These things are in conflict with one another. Well, as we do apologetics, sometimes we end up having... We do the, there's the offense and the defense, and we've been stressing those two different sides through the midst of this, right? The offensive side of things, that's 2 Corinthians 10. We seek to take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. We destroy strongholds, every lofty opinion that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. We're seeking to bring those into subjection to Christ by showing the futility of them and showing that Christ is true and right and we need to trust in Him. That's the offensive side of things. The non-Christian presupposition is refuted from its own worldview by demonstrating its inconsistencies and absolute absurdity. And we talked a little bit about this last week, about how when we start talking about how to critique someone's worldviews, we can challenge their metaphysical understanding. Does their their theory of reality actually seem like it makes sense of the world around us? you believe that all there is is just material universe. Does that really account for the things that we see in the world? Can your theory of reality account for actual reality? We could challenge their epistemological understanding. How do you know what you think you know? What are you appealing to? What is your ultimate authority? We could challenge them on that. We could challenge them on their ethical understanding. Why, why do you think this is right and wrong? Says who? And, and one of the most important questions we can ask in apologetic conversations is, says who? Who makes that determination? Who is the authority here? How are we thinking through this? There's, there's a real famous, um, there's a several famous apologists who like to use this. There's the according to what standard is kind of the, the more, I don't know, sophisticated way, I guess, to ask the question says who? Well, according to what standard? How how can you make these claims based on what authority? And so we're challenging their worldview. We're showing the inconsistency and the absurdity of their own worldview by probing in and exposing it that way. Sometimes, however, truth claims come against us and we have to play defensive apologetics. 
defensive apologetics where the non-Christian claims have to be refuted with Christian knowledge claims, with a biblical worldview, we have to confront these knowledge claims, and sometimes we're playing defense. We're giving a defense for why we, the knowledge claims that we are claiming to be true, why they hold up under scrutiny. <clears throat> a whole bunch of different things can be raised against us. Things like, oh, there's no God. It's a knowledge claim. It runs directly counter to Christian knowledge claims. We talked about a little bit about this last week. Oh, the Bible was just written by men. Or the Bible's full of errors. We can't trust it. It's, it's, not, it's not a trustworthy document. Oh, it's like a game of telephone. You know, it's been translated and it's been, it's been copied so many times. You just you go through so many times and it's just, we don't even know what the original is actually said. How about this one? If God is all-powerful and all-knowing and loving, then evil shouldn't exist. But evil exists. So God is either not all-powerful, he can't do something about it, or maybe he's not all-knowing, he just doesn't know what's going on, or maybe he just, he's actually not loving, he doesn't care, or he doesn't exist at all. God is a vindictive bully. We talked about this last week a little bit too. Man, that God of the Old Testament, man, he sure is. It, uh, we're going through Judges. I think you guys, uh, there's a lot of smiting going on, right? <laughs> That's, there is, yeah. Well, how do we understand that? How do we think about these things? What do we, how do we respond? And I, I would like to ask if, if there's anything else that comes up as far as things that just, questions that people have had, I do want to be able to make time within our time I mentioned this last week. I want to emphasize it again this week. If there's any other issues that you guys would like discussed as we move through this course, let me know about those things because we, I don't want us to end this, this series without having addressed the things that we have encountered and that we, we want to be able to give an answer to. So we do want to work through all of these things, kind of just playing a little bit of defense and trying to apply some of our apologetic methodology, this foundation that we've already laid for how we think through apologetics, how we think through uh, just the different presuppositions that we're bringing to the table, how we think through those things and apply them to playing more defensive apologetics. Any questions about any of that before we keep moving forward? Is anybody interested in having a printout of this chart? Because I can print that out and bring more copies next week. That'd be helpful. I'll do that. It's, I know it's, it's, a busy, it's a busy graphic. It is well organized, yes. It, it can be laminated. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we're going to start, and as things stand right now, I plan as we move forward in future weeks to just move through this list as it is right here and address these different knowledge claims that unbelievers bring to the table that directly confront what we would say our knowledge claims are. Well, how can we respond, and how can we think through these things? And so some of these, some of these apologetics are going to be, they're going to tap into different apologetic methodologies because I think there is some value in some of them in, in, in different ways. 
Going back to what we opened with as far as how it helps remove surface-level objections so that we can point people to faith in Jesus Christ. Some of these different methodologies are useful to that end, and so we're going to look at them. It takes wisdom to know which apologetic we use in which situation, and we need to just seek the Lord's guidance and seek Him just to um, help us in the moment to know what, which, uh, which direction to go with things. But let's just begin with the existence of God. There's the truth claim. There is no God. There is no God. How can we respond? First, there's a few things I want to remind us about that I've already mentioned, some of which I've already mentioned today, some of which I've mentioned in previous weeks, that is helpful for us to bear in mind as we engage with individuals who claim there is no God. We know that in reality there are no true atheists, right? People claim to say that there is no God, but in reality... There are no true atheists. We know, again, the Bible just simply assumes God's existence. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's just the reality. And biblically speaking, there are no true atheists. Uh, can someone look up Psalm 14.1? You got that? Psalm 14.1. And while you're going there, I'm going to remind us what Romans 1 says. We spent significant time going through Romans, so I'm not going to dwell on that too much, but it demonstrates for us that what can be known about God, God has revealed it to mankind in the things that have been made. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. We are without excuse. We just, we just know it within ourselves that there is a God and He has made all things. It's just a fundamental reality, and we're suppressing that truth. We're, de- we're, trying, to, we're trying to hide from it and turn it away, but the knowledge is there. Psalm 14.1 says what? fool says in his heart, there is no God. It is foolishness to say there is no God. So we think of all these like these brilliant scientists. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Bless his heart, he says. Or uh, Richard Dawkins. Or uh, these, these, these different individuals. They're just, they're incredibly smart individuals. IQs that are just off the charts. What would you say? Sam Harris. Sam Harris, yeah. According to my son, that's Okay. Sam Harris. Many brilliant individuals. They, there's, uh, there's four atheists that have been called the, um, the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins. Oh, I'm forgetting who the other two are. They're all modern, modern individuals. Uh, I'll have How sad to be the loudest fools. <laughs> How sad to be the loudest fools, indeed. Uh, that is well put. They're fools. As, as, as brilliant as they are, as, as how, um, how high their IQs are, the fool is the one who says in his heart there is no God. Christopher Hitchens, uh, he, Christopher Hitchens passed away not too long ago, didn't he? Or was that his brother? I don't remember. Anyway, that's not important. Um, there you go. Logically speaking, atheism is irrational. 
to say definitively that there is no God is an irrational statement because it's illogically impossible to prove non-existence. At most, someone who is being honest with themselves, at the most that they could say, I think, would be that they're not sure. That maybe, but maybe not. They would have to be more agnostic without, without knowledge. That's what the word agnostic means, without knowledge. But to say definitively, I am an atheist, there is no God, that is a foolhardy statement because it's impossible to prove non-existence from a logical point of view. Now, there are a variety of different arguments for the existence of God that exist. Some are more helpful than others. Some are very helpful for edification of believers to help us think through and, and, and say, yes, you know, it is rational. It is, there are logical, good, logical reasons to believe in the existence of God. Some of them are based off of logic. Some of them are based off of, you know, evidences and things of that nature. We're going to walk through a few of the arguments and then try to evaluate them on their strengths and weaknesses. First, the cosmological arguments. The cosmological argument seeks to ask the question, what is the origin of the universe? Now, there's different responses that people give to this. There's a naturalistic explanation. Well, the universe was just kind of self-created or it's eternal. It's always been. We've always had the universe. There's never been a time that's... Again, I think it's Neil deGrasse Tyson who said, the universe is all there is, all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. Okay. Well, sounds like a grand enough statement. Does it hold water? Yeah. Right. Yes. Carl Sagan, big time. Yeah. Mm, yes. The other option, if it's not eternal or self-created, it's it was created by someone or something else. Was that God? Maybe it's aliens. Maybe aliens from a different dimension came and started our universe. That's a thing, by the way. People people throw that out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um. There's a, there's a Jewish man, I forget his name now, um, who made this movie called, um, Intel, was it called Intelligent Design? Um, where this phrase, intelligent design, became a thing that began to be thrown around as trying to say, oh no, it's, it's rational to believe in an intelligent designer of the universe. Trying to, trying to open the door to other origin possibilities within like uh, secular schools and such, uh, uh, the um, public schools, so that uh, just a purely naturalistic thing wasn't the only thing dominating. But he wasn't willing to go so far as to say that the intelligent designer is definitely and, and surely God. Darwin's black box. There was a guy, I think his name was Stiller or something like that. It was, I can't remember exactly. I'll have, to, I'll have to look it up and find it. In a naturalistic worldview, when we think of how the universe came to being, there's some impersonal force that's energy or matter, atoms, space, plus a whole bunch of time, plus chance equals creation. How is that more plausible than a God 
it's not. <laughs> but that's, that's the worldview. That's the viewpoint. Well, part of this, part of the cosmological argument is to demonstrate that that is, it is not rational to, to believe this. It is not something that's more plausible. Because the question you still have to ask is, well, where did that impersonal force come from? Where did even time itself come from? Where did energy, matter, atom, space, where did all these things come from? They had to come from somewhere. Something had to set things off. Where did it all come from? It can't just be time plus chance plus this impersonal force in order to result in everything that we see in the world. Furthermore, you ask, so how, is this more, how is this more plausible? The odds of this happening, even secular scientists, if they're trying to calculate the odds of this, this number is so big, I couldn't even fit it on the screen if the font was just so tiny. Like, there's so many zeros after this number. I'm trying to see, let's see. Uh, this is the number one, followed by 40,000 zeros. A one followed by 40,000 zeros. It's crazy. Absolutely insane. What? Oh. <laughs> we can say it takes great faith to believe this. It would, this is where the whole the little quip, oh, I, it takes... It takes more faith to be an atheist than it takes to be a believer, right? So, yeah. yeah, it's like, it's, that's, that's an astounding thing. Well, if the universe is eternal, though, the, the response will be, well, that's enough time. Anything can happen. The, the law of probability states anything will happen that can. Even if the odds are so infinitesimal, infin, incredibly small. <laughs> to get tongue-tied, you just use a different word. That's the solution will happen. Yeah. So, we have, in, we have an eternity to work it out, so therefore, here we are. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, the cosmological argument is going to try to demonstrate that it's more rational to believe that everything was created by someone or something else. And we're going to argue that that is the God of the Bible. And I've got a little video here that I think is, is helpful for us. It, really, it breaks down uh, in a pretty simple way this argument and even some responses to the argument. So I'm going to, I'm going to play that for us. Maybe. Here we go. Something can come into being from nothing, 
then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvin Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin, proved that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused, and unimaginably powerful, much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. It is a well-made video. Hmm? Devil's Advocate. Everything that has uh, a beginning has a cause, but our argument is that God did not have a beginning. He was the uncaused cause. Why does God have to have a be- what is why does God have to have a beginning? But God's not a thing. That's assuming we're inside the world of 
the material universe, but God exists outside the, the realm of the material universe. So to say that God must have a beginning assumes that God is something that God is not. There, it's, the whole point of the, the argument is to demonstrate that if God was part of the un, material universe, then I would agree, okay, yeah, then God had to have a cause, but he's not. There always has to be some, like the, the video shows at the end, they, um, I'm going to try to find the, the point. Every, um, just to, everything that began to exist has a cause. And that's, that's, a, that's a key word because everything that exists doesn't necessarily have a beginning or a cause. God exists, but he does not have a beginning or a cause. But everything that began to exist must have a cause. Does that make sense? So it's... The universe is demonstrable that the universe had a beginning. Like, you know, and there's, there's, so there's elements within this argument that... Yes. So they cited a lot of those scientists in here. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you just, you just rewind the time and bring everything back in and it all comes back to a single point and that's why they theorize about the whole point of the Big Bang, etc. Um, so everything that began to exist has a cause, but the argument about, about God himself is that God is eternal, so he never began to exist. He's immaterial. He's not part of the material universe. He's outside of it. He's timeless, uh, time began with the beginning of the universe. We talk about in the beginning. There was, that was, that's where time began. That's where time started with the, with the beginning of the universe. Well, God would have to exist outside of that. So now we've got a, an immaterial... Um, what are the other things I said? Uh, e- yeah, eternal, immaterial, uh, timeless being that is immensely powerful and exists outside and independent from all those things. Well, that, that sounds like God, right? And so the, the, God has to, there has to be something that has the attribute of eternal, uncaused existence. I, I, even, I even misspoke there. So I said something. There must be a, a being beyond the, the, all of those things. And so that's where the cosmological argument can be helpful. Now, I do think there are weaknesses of this argument, and I'll get to those. Well, I'll get to those now because we're out of time. (laughs) So, 
I, okay, I was going to skip over this. I'm going to do this real quick because you mentioned Clockmaker. There's the teleological argument, which is very similar to the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument looks up and looks big and goes, wow, there's all this stuff. Had to come from somewhere. Probably a God that made it all. Teleological argument kind of looks down and goes, wow, this universe is incredibly complex and it seems to be incredibly fine-tuned and designed for specific purposes and ideas and all these things. And so it looks at the complexity of creation and says, wow, this, it really seems like there was someone who really was thinking about things and in- intelligently designed things to operate the way they are. So it looks at things like eyes and other organs of the human body. The eye is the most complex organ in your body. The eye can do things that is just so incredible that cannot be replicated truly by anything created by man. By man. It's just, it is just a, a, an astounding thing. Even some of the most smallest single-cell organisms are incredibly complex. So we have this, this little um, single-celled organism that is literally a motor. Like all the components that we think of a motor, of just like there's the, there's the gear shaft, and it turns and the little tail spins and it propels itself along. It's a motor. It's a single-cell organism and it's got a motor in it. Well, how is that possible in a random happenstance universe? How is the complexity of the eye and all the, the cornea, the pupil, the way the light refracts and comes in through the eye and, and the, the, our image is the, actually when you, when you see, the image is upside down. I don't know if you know that. And then your brain corrects the image. If you wear glasses that flip the image because of mirrors, your brain will actually correct it and you'll see right side up again. And when you take it off, you'll see upside down until your brain recorrects it again. It's incredible. Your brain and your eyes, the way they work together, it's just, it's absolutely mind-blowing. And so the, the, teleological argument looks at all the fine-tuning of the universe and concludes there must be an intelligent designer. This could not have happened by chance. I'm not going to show this video, but you brought up the watchmaker. This is a video that it's, in, it's dealing with the whole watchmaker thing. Like if, you've got all, all, if you just have a, a bunch of matter in a bag and you shake it up for long enough, is it going to just magically assemble into a watch? No. If there's a watch, there's got to be a watchmaker. And so that's what this argument goes. It's a teleological argument. Strengths and weaknesses. I think it does help us demonstrate the necessity of God. That there, if we see creation, there had to be a creator. This is like um, Ray Comfort and Kirk, uh, Kirk Cameron. Um, these guys, the, the, you know, the Way of the Master, uh, Wretched Radio, Todd Friel. These guys like to use this. Well, if there's a painting... There had to be a painter, like, like the, the painting just doesn't just show up by itself or just evolve by itself. There has to be something creating it. So they're helpful in that way. However, they can't get to the God of the Bible on their own. So even, so that video about uh, the cosmological argument, that's, that's actually a particular form of the, uh, the cosmological argument called the Kalam cosmological argument. It's a very favorite argument of William Lane Craig. He's, a, um, uh, he's, a, he's an apologist. Um, but even he admits that this methodology can't get you to the Christian God. It gets you to generic theism, and then I have to use other methodologies to then take you the rest of the way to the Christian God. But are they helpful? 
to a point. I think, I, think it's, I think they can be helpful. Again, when we think about what is our apologetic methodology for, we're trying to remove the surface level objections and so that we can get to the point of, well, if there's a God, we're accountable to him. And this is where the issue of the gospel comes into play. Now, most of the time, when people give different objections about God, it's, they are just they are surface-level objections. They are just that. And if you say, well, I, you know, is it really rational to believe that? I mean, there's this, 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 and the other thing. The conversation quickly moves from arguments about God's existence to objections to your God. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It's not just, oh, well, I just don't believe in any God and it's just a generic God. Like, um, I think, Jess, you sent that clip about, um, um, what's his name? Uh, he was saying like, oh, you know, you, don't, you know how you don't believe in the 999,000 other gods that are out there? You don't believe in Zeus and you don't believe in all these things. Oh, well, I'm just like you, except I just add one more to the list. I don't believe in, that your God exists. Well, okay, that's, that's an argu- that's, it's a silly argument in a lot of ways, but... Um, the argument very quickly moves from, if you begin to challenge some of these things, like, well, you know, if, if the universe came to be, um, you know, it had to have, a, someone had to put it into motion, there had to be a creator, you know, even if you go back and go back and go back, you know, let's just assume for the sake of the argument that we're going to adopt a Big Bang model, like there still had to be, that, that matter had to come from somewhere, the objections begin to shift. Oh, well, your God is... is kind of a hateful God or something of that nature. Like the argument doesn't, is no longer about whether or not God exists, but it's about attacking the Christian God and, the, and what the Bible says, try, trying to attack the sufficiency of Scripture or, um, or uh, well, I, I, can't, I would never choose to believe in a God that, that wouldn't let uh, love be love. And so I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to believe in that. All of a sudden, the, the argument shifts because it's a surface-level objection. It's a smokescreen. People throw it up, and, they, and that's what they're trying to justify their existence. They're trying to justify their choices in their life. And when you begin to kind of erode that away, other objections begin to fly up because it's not really about God's existence. It's about all these other things that they don't like. It's about sin, and it's about how they, they like their sin, and they do not want to... It's, that's it, is what it comes down to. It's about not wanting to be accountable to the God that they inherently know exists. So that's what I find. Whenever I'm talking to someone who insists that God doesn't exist, it does not take long for that conversation to shift. Very, very quickly, it goes from an argument about God's existence to, I don't like your, the way your God is portrayed. I don't like what you say is, is true about what they actually know about the Right, exactly. Yeah. Yep. They are. And that's... Hmm? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, I've said that about, about different things myself. I've, I've, I don't think I've ever said that about Christianity as a whole. But there have been things that like um, a a particular theological viewpoint that led people to to act in a certain way. And I looked at the way they acted and said, well, if this is where your theology leaves, then I want no part of it. Well, 
Yeah, and and uh, I'll add that to our list of, how, of things to how we can how, different ways. I think there's a number of different ways we can respond to people when they say stuff like that. Yes, there's a there's a whole lot of different things we could say. So I'll I'll add that to our list of things that we can walk through. Um, so yeah, just to wrap it up, there are benefits, and and these things are edifying for us as believers. We can help, it can help just remove the surface level objections and then we can begin to probe into some of the other things that are really at the core of what the objections are. Next week, I do plan, there's, a, there's two more arguments for the existence of God that are worth looking at. Um, they take a little bit more, uh, like I used the, last week I talked about how right, we need our thinking cap song. Yeah, it takes a little bit more to, to think through those. So we'll save those for next week and talk about them then. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we can spend uh, considering these different things. Of uh, <laughs> Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to wonder if you exist. You have made yourself sufficiently known, sufficiently clear. Lord, we have to embrace what you say is true. Help us to do that. Help us to show others the way of faith in Christ and show them the gospel and your great love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.